This is a special episode of the Aerospace Advantage podcast to tackle an alarming headline in the news, Russia's plan to put nuclear weapons in space. Last Thursday, Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio publicly requested that the Biden administration declassify intelligence regarding a new Russian space power capability. While the White House hasn't spoken with tremendous specificity about the development cited by Congressman Turner, various statements made by a range of officials suggest that this is a nuclear anti-satellite weapon that is still in development, but once launched, could hold the vast majority of satellites at risk, both civil and military alike. This technology isn't new. It dates back to the Cold War. However, this sort of attack is so broad and debilitating Both the Soviet Union and the United States chose never to actually feel this capability at an operational level. The U.S. tested it once really early in the Cold War, but stayed away from it ever since. In fact, the U.S. and the USSR signed a treaty banning this sort of capability. So that's what we're here to talk about today. What is this new development? Why does it matter? And what should we do about it? We've got Charles Galbraith of the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence with us today as our in-house expert. As you all know, he spent his career as a space professional in the United States Air Force and then the Space Force, retiring as the Deputy Chief Technology Officer at the rank of Colonel. And just to be clear, we are really fortunate to have him with us today. He's spent a significant portion of his career thinking about these sorts of challenges in his first Mitchell Institute report, focused on space control, discussing how we should handle increasingly offensive actions in space by adversaries like China and Russia. We've added a link to this paper in the show notes, and I think it's really crucial reading given all that's in play right now. All right, Charles, thanks so much for being here on short notice. You know, I tried to summarize it in the opening, but please walk us through what developed last week about this newly revealed threat. Yes, look, I I appreciate uh, the overview that you provided. I think it was very accurate. What a lot of people might have seen last week was a headline similar to nuclear weapons in space, and that would obviously get a lot of people's attention. Uh, So how did this all unfold? Last week uh, on February 14th, Mike Turner, the House Intelligence uh, Committee chairman, said that there was a threat to our space capabilities that he wanted uh, there to be more of a discussion about. and He wanted the Biden administration to uh, release information so that they could openly discuss this. Uh, It caused a lot of people uh, some concern and and got a lot of headlines. The next day, John Kirby, the White House spokesman, held a a briefing that talked about the fact that there is a threat that we are tracking. Uh, It is not an immediate threat. Uh, He did not confirm or deny whether it was a nuclear-powered threat. Uh, And he said that uh, we're working through this and we're going to be briefing the the House uh, uh, members on, on that Thursday and then the Senate uh, in, in a few weeks when they reconvene. So while there's headlines that say, yes, there's a, a threat to our space capabilities, that is something we should all be taking very seriously. And, and we'll discuss what that might manifest as, uh, what the Russians might be pursuing in, in, in a, here in a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate that, Charles, so much. And, and you, can you help us understand what this really means? I mean, people hear about a nuclear weapon, and they are obviously uh, extremely concerned. Uh, and it's about as serious as it gets uh, in a national security context or, you know, really in any context. So what does a threat uh, on orbit really mean? Yeah, so there's basically different categories that we could uh, see a nuclear capability or an ASAT system uh, manifest. 
uh, on the far extreme would be a nuclear detonation in space. And that could either be from a, a direct ascent on top of an ICBM that then detonates into low Earth orbit, for example, or it could be a satellite that ho hosts a nuclear weapon that then plans to detonate or release an electromagnetic pulse. Uh, the effects of, of that type of a weapon would be the immediate blast that would impact several satellites uh, in the near vicinity, as well as uh, an electromagnetic pulse that, that uh, radiates or energizes the Van Allen radiation belts that then causes uh, potential harm to other satellites in that orbital regime. And you can see multiple satellites uh, having anomalies or even some uh, becoming degraded uh, or become uh, unfunctional. That's, that's one extreme. Taking it down a notch might be a nuclear-powered uh, weapons system that may not release a nuclear blast and, and may just be using nuclear energy to fuel uh, or to power some other sort of attack mechanism, some sort of electronic weapon system uh, or directed energy system. And then moving further down the spectrum, you could have a nuclear-powered spacecraft uh, that is using that, that nuclear fuel for, for energy source, uh, to keep the, the satellite functioning or to propel uh, the spacecraft. All are of, uh, you know, a concern, but certainly on the extreme side, a nuclear detonation in space would be far worse th than anything else and would have indiscriminate effects. And, and that is one of the things that uh, makes this such a compelling uh, uh, topic of discussion. Yeah. And, and only because we've hosted so many podcasts and, and with having, you know, your leadership really uh, peeling back the layers of the onion and, and having our listeners understand uh, what warfare in space uh, looks like. Um, we're not talking, you know, mushroom clouds because there's no uh, explosions in space, right? It's more uh, nuclear type energy, you know, uh, flying around to affect uh, satellites operations, right? So kind of shorting them out or whatever, just kind of putting it into a normal context. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't suggest anybody put their uh, cell phone in a microwave, uh, but you know that's the sort of thing that you might be uh, impacting a satellite with. And, and we've seen this before. Back in 1962, uh, the United States conducted a, a test called Starfish Prime, where we detonated a nuclear weapon in low Earth orbit. Now, at the time, there were only about 24 satellites uh, uh, in space uh, that could be potentially affected. Eight of those actually ended up becoming uh, dysfunctional satellites after uh, after that detonation. So there was a significant impact on, on roughly a third of, of the satellites in orbit at the time. Obviously, we have a lot more satellites uh, in orbit today, and, and certainly in low Earth orbit with uh, proliferated warfighting uh, space architecture from the Space Development Agency, as well as uh, SpaceX's Starlink constellation. And those could be what uh, a, a Russian weapon system might be trying to counter, is that proliferated uh, architecture uh, that we're seeing used so well uh, in Ukraine, and as part of our overall uh, architecture moving forward for the United States. Um, but, but circling back on Starfish Prime, um, that not only impacted those satellites in orbit, but it actually blacked out power to Hawaii some 900 miles away. Uh, and so while there may not be an immediate effect to, to humans, uh, there is uh, an indirect effect that, that could be had uh, if this weapon system were a, a nuclear detonation capability. Yeah. And thanks so much for the history on that. You know, as, as I understand it, you know, the U.S., you know, I knew that they executed that test really early in the Cold War. Uh, and it did not take long for the United States or the Soviet Union to understand that this was a losing proposition. Uh, so both sides generally stayed away from this kind of activity uh, and decided to, you know, essentially sign 
a treaty to make sure that we weren't going to play in this this type of space. And obviously, uh, times have changed. Um, now, one thing uh, that that I want to mention to our audience quickly from a nuclear perspective, you know, there's a treaty that basically says we won't put anything nuclear into space, and that includes. You know, one of the biggest limiting factors that uh, on-orbit satellites have is their fuel reserve. Uh, if you think about it, it goes up, and the fuel that it has, either to move around or uh, open and close things, it's it's uh, it's limited. So, uh, obviously, the idea of uh, a very long, sustainable type of engine, like Charles mentioned, uh, being nuclear powered, uh, would be something. But because of the treaties, um, you know, we we are not doing those types of things. So, I just want to. Uh, point out to our, our listeners that since this is such a quick special that we're getting out, that there are some other episodes on the Aerospace Advantage uh, if you want to get smart on this kind of stuff. So Charles and his team are uh, really doing great work. So uh, Charles, I just want to ask, you know, are all orbits equal in terms of uh, this threat impact, you know, or are there certain nuances that are in play depending on where the satellites are? Yes, look, so, so there are differences, but I, I want to circle back with you real quick on uh, that Outer Space Treaty, the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, because you're absolutely right. After we detonated that, uh, that Starfish Prime test in 1962, we, we saw the ramifications of that. And shortly after, there was a, a, a nuclear test ban uh, treaty put in place. But on top of that, we agreed, and the Soviet Union at the time, as well as many other nations, agreed in 1967 that we're not going to put any weapons of mass destruction in orbit or on celestial bodies. And so certainly a, a weapon system such as a nuclear detonation that, that some speculate the Russians might be trying to achieve here would be in violation of that and would have indiscriminate effects on, on multiple satellites, multiple nations, and, and have impacts uh, potentially around the world. But that does not that treaty does not uh, prohibit the use of nuclear-powered uh, spacecraft. Uh, the Soviet Union, as I mentioned, has had nuclear-powered spacecraft uh, for, for reconnaissance. We've certainly used uh, nuclear-powered spacecraft uh, to explore different parts of, of the solar system. You know, Voyager, uh, most famously, has some nuclear-powered capabilities on it. Uh, so just wanted to clarify for everybody that uh, there is a distinction between uh, weapons of mass destruction and nuclear-powered spacecraft. Now, you asked about different effects at different orbital regimes. So certainly at low Earth orbit, where you might have a, a greater concentration of satellites, uh, you're going to impact more capabilities, more systems with a single blast or potentially a single uh, you know, wide area effect uh, type of weapon. As you go further and further uh, into uh, higher orbits, uh, the effects are going to become less and less significant. Uh, there is more radiation the further you get into uh, higher orbits. And so different satellites are going to have uh, rad hardening capabilities uh, to protect their uh, you know, sensitive electronics uh, from that type of radiation. Additionally, the, the dispersal of satellites is going to be much wider. And so you're not going to impact as many satellites as quickly uh, the higher you go in orbit. And so that's why there's, there's much greater concern about those uh, spacecraft in low Earth orbit that, that could be affected by this. And, and then let's not forget, uh, there are 10 people currently in low Earth orbit today uh, that could be affected by this. And there, there may not be an immediate uh, health concern to them. Certainly the life support systems, the communications, the navigations capabilities that they all depend on could be impacted by an electromagnetic pulse potentially uh, from a Russian weapon system. 
all right, Charles, I've got to ask you this. So how long do these effects last? I mean, there's, you know, the electromagnetic pulse, the radiation, then the dead satellites on orbit that are not under any form of positive control. So are we talking about a problem that lasts weeks, months, years, or is this like decades? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, the answer is all of the above. So the immediate blast, uh, if there was a nuclear detonation in, in low Earth orbit, for example, uh, would, would have uh, immediate effects on those satellites in the near vicinity. That uh, charging of the Van Allen radiation belts uh, could persist for, for months or, or even a few years, uh, depending on the size of the blast and, and where it was exactly. And so that creates a hazard to uh, those satellites for, for that duration. Uh, again, months uh, or even a few years. Now, you, you correctly point out that those dead satellites, um, either from the blast or from the EMP effect, uh, can no longer be commanded. And that creates a, a debris, basically, that has to be mitigated. And if there is debris that, that uh, you know, a satellite that, that breaks apart as a result of the blast, that could spread. And as we've seen from both the Chinese and the Russian uh, anti-satellite tests uh, of uh, you know, direct ascent ASAT capabilities, that debris can last for decades. And uh, certainly with an indiscriminate attack of, of a nuclear weapon in low Earth orbit, well, we're talking about uh, debris that could last for multiple decades and, and pose a, a hazard to uh, any spacefaring nation um, in low Earth orbit. Charles, you just said a word indiscriminate. So I, I want to emphasize a crucial point. I mean, this impacts military and civilian satellites alike, right? Yeah, ab absolutely. And that's that's one of the reasons why it was banned by the 1967 Outer Space Treaty is uh, an indiscriminate weapon uh, it is not something we want to see used anywhere, including low Earth orbit, because it would impact all nations, uh, all commercial activities. And, and as I mentioned, uh, all of the the humans that are currently in low Earth orbit, uh, 10, uh, three on the Chinese space station and seven currently on the International Space Station. Um, now, we also know from the, the way that this has unfolded that this is not a near-term threat, and we're talking about a medium to long-term threat. What that actually means in terms of years, I, I don't know. Uh, but as we begin to venture further out into space and put more and more people in space, that type of threat is going to end up impacting more and more people. Uh, and certainly as we become increasingly dependent uh, on space capabilities for all of our day-to-day you know, -day activities, a weapon system that can take out low Earth orbit uh, satellites, including weather, communications, uh, some of our uh, PNT signals that come from a higher orbit, uh, medium Earth orbit, could be impacted by the, the radiation and, and could impact the signal. And of course, we rely on PNT capabilities for just about everything today, including banking and, and uh, global, global uh, transfer of funds, um, as well as how to get from point A to point B today. So uh, yeah, there's some significant impacts uh, that could be had by, by taking out indiscriminately uh, a space capability. Yeah, I mean, this is beyond like the annoyance of my my uh, my maps not working on my on my cell device, right? I mean, th this is a huge deal given the context. And you know, after listening to you, I, I really have to push back on White House spokesman John Kirby's statement when he said, uh, "quote Though Russia's pursuit of this particular capability is troubling, there is no immediate threat to anyone's safety." Now, 
given how dependent we are on space-based capabilities, uh, people's lives would be in danger. And I mean, you can't even buy gas without connecting to space, given the role GPS plays in banking, as you mentioned. Um, and, you know, good luck running emergency vehicles without fuel. And I could go on with more and more examples. So, Charles, any more uh, quick thoughts on this? No, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. We, we are incredibly dependent on space capabilities. And so uh, any type of indiscriminate attack against that uh, poses a significant risk, uh, not just to the satellites that, uh, that don't have mothers, as people famously say, uh, but to the men and women uh, all around the world and in armed services uh, that rely on those space capabilities uh, for you know, day-to-day life as well as current military operations. And uh, you know, any attack against space capabilities ultimately puts uh, humans at risk. So Charles, what's changing and why is Russia going this way? I mean, it would, it would take out their space capabilities too, you know, plus China and everybody else's, and it, you know, it's not gonna win them a popularity contest. No, absolutely not. And I, and I think what has changed um, is partly the struggle that they've encountered in Ukraine. Uh, and, and we can't underestimate how, how devastating that is psychologically to them, um, you know, how demoralizing it is maybe to, to Putin personally that it's taken this long. And he sees the use of, for example, Starlink, uh, a capability that, uh, that the Ukrainians are using to great effect uh, to coordinate and communicate. And so how do you counter that? Part of the reason Space Development Agency is pursuing this proliferated warfighting space architecture using multiple lower uh, cost satellites in low Earth orbit rather than large, exquisite satellites that cost a lot of money at, at a higher orbit is the, the fact that there were threats uh, to our space capabilities. And, and by proliferating and using lower cost systems, we decrease the, the potential uh, motivation to go after any one satellite. Uh, and that may drive Russia to try to go after a whole bunch of satellites in one fell swoop. Uh, whether or not he's developing these capabilities to counter Starlink or the PWSA architecture that, that the United States military is pursuing is unclear at this time. Um, but, but I think that our, our transition to using proliferated low Earth orbit satellites is maybe one of those motivations of, of what has changed. Got it. And, and Charles, you're the expert here. So do you think China or other adversaries will try to develop these capabilities too? Well, so first, I, I hope not. Um, a weapon of mass destruction to take out uh, satellites is really, as we've said, indiscriminate, and it's a weapon of last resort. And I would hope that uh, potential adversaries would recognize the international laws and the norms that we've established to prohibit weapons of mass destruction in orbit. Uh, and, and pursue other options. So I, I'm hoping that that we can that cooler heads will prevail, uh, and that we can steer away from from the deployment of of, of that type of weapon system. Uh, you know, any type of ASAT system is something we need to take seriously. Uh, but a WMD in space is something we absolutely have to uh, try to nip in the bud as quickly as possible. Sure. Now, Charles, you also wrote a paper last summer about space control. Uh, how we deal with adversaries increasingly seeking to contest uh, activities on orbit. So this cuts to the heart of that. Do you mind walking us through the basics we should understand? It's it's no secret. We in the United States and our allies have, over the past 30 years, done an incredible job of leveraging space capabilities and services to make ourselves more effective. We've, we've talked about uh, how it impacts uh, all of our daily lives. 
That's doubly true on the military side. There really isn't a military operation that, that we can conceive of today that doesn't use space in some way. And our adversaries, primarily Russia and China, have seen this and believe that attacking our space capabilities might be that, that soft underbelly, that Achilles heel uh, to our capabilities that could undermine our overall strategy. And so they are developing uh, a wide range of uh, threat systems, uh, everything from ground-based jamming, ground-based uh, uh, laser systems, um, ground-based direct ascent ASAT systems, as we've seen demonstrated by both Russia and China, as well as on-orbit capabilities, uh, utilizing jamming systems, uh, grappling arms, uh, even explosives in, in what we've seen as a, a Russian nesting doll type capability. And uh, they are developing these things, again, to counter the advantage we have in space to try to undermine our overall plans and, and create windows of opportunity for themselves uh, to, to achieve their own terrestrial goals and objectives, uh, either militarily or politically. Well, Charles, that really cuts to the core issue at play. You know, it's not in our interest to see an overt conflict in space. So we want to deter that sort of outcome. So how do we do that, especially given something like this, you know, this new Russian capability that we're hearing about? Yeah, deterrence uh, is our objective, uh, obviously, uh, whether that's a terrestrial or in space. Um, But in space, the, the Chief of Space Operations, General Saltzman, has, has laid out this theory of competitive endurance that, that identifies three key tenets that uh, are aimed to control escalation, uh, to keep things in the competition phase and, and not escalate to conflict. And so as part of that theory of uh, competitive endurance, there's um, avoiding operational surprise. So maintaining awareness of, of what's going on in space, as well as the threats that are on, on uh, land or, or on Earth uh, that could move to space. Uh, there is a denying first mover advantage, and, and this gets to really the, the need to make our architecture more resilient so that it doesn't invite attack, uh, as, uh, as we've seen uh, capabilities by, by Russia and, and China being developed to, to try to undercut our capabilities in space. And then finally is the tenant of responsible counterspace campaigning. This is that you know there may be actions that we take in space to deny adversaries' capabilities, and they may take try to take uh, uh, actions to deny ours. But we're going to do this in a responsible manner that to avoid a, what is called a pirate victory, uh, something that basically decimates the entire uh, uh, orbital regime for, for use by anybody. Uh, that's not something we want to achieve. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So let's assume you're dual-hatted as the chief of space operations and the commander of Space Command. What do you do to deal with this threat immediately and as it plays out over time? Yeah, so let me just start with saying uh, we absolutely have the right leaders in those positions. Uh, General Whiting uh, as the commander of U.S. Space Command. Uh, and General Saltzman as the Chief of Space Operations leading the Space Force. They are absolutely the right people to be leading these organizations uh, right now. Uh, And I have complete confidence that they are doing everything they can uh, to get after these threats. Uh, But if I were in their shoes, the first thing I'd want to do is is get as much information as possible. So this means uh, working through the intelligence community's assessments, uh, working through our our own space domain awareness uh, capabilities as well, what we have on orbit, what we could put on orbit. And, and we've seen recently some, some new launches uh, by Astroscale that could do uh, on-orbit inspection of, of debris. Uh, we're about to see the launch of uh, two Jackal uh, satellites that will have uh, an inspection capability as well. 
And of course, Space Force demonstrated a capability last year called Victus Knox, which is a rapid launch uh, to put up a, a domain awareness sensor uh, in, in the event of an emergency. So all of those could come to bear uh, should the Russians uh, deploy an ASAT system. Now, beyond domain awareness, what we need to do is protect our capabilities from any sort of attack. And this is exactly what we're doing as part of that theory of competitive endurance and improving the resilience of our architecture overall. Uh, so as I've mentioned, we, we're proliferating our capabilities so that uh, any one asset that, that might get taken out doesn't have a significant effect. Um, we are building in uh, protection measures into our capabilities. We are using different orbits in a hybrid architecture to make sure that uh, even if there is an attack on, on one orbital regime, we have others that can augment and replace. Let's also not forget that uh, as we build a proliferated uh, architecture that has multiple satellites uh, being replenished on a two-year cycle, for example, those satellites can be taken off the assembly line and, and used to reconstitute uh, any lost capability that, that might be damaged uh, by any sort of attack. And so the domain awareness that we're pursuing, the plans that, that we're developing to uh, increase the resilience of our architecture as well as reconstitute our capabilities are, are all the right things to do for any type of threat. Uh, even this this new emerging threat that we're hearing about from Russia. Got it. All right. So now I'm going to twist this a little bit again. Put on your congressional hat for a moment. What should the House and Senate do? And I'm guessing pass a budget might be a good place to start, but let's get serious about the scale and scope of the challenges we face and consider that now might not be the time for defense budget caps. So starting with educating the American public about you know the really real dangers that are in, in play is probably a good place to start, right? Well, absolutely. First and foremost, you hit the nail on the head. We need a budget. Uh, and this is a budget that has to be growing because the threats to our space capabilities are growing, just like our dependence on space is growing. And so uh, the thought of, uh, of tapering off uh, any growth for the Space Force in the, in the immediate future, I, I think, is very short-sighted. Um, but beyond that, yes, they, they actually need to be working together to uh, you know, figure out what's happening with this threat and aligning the American people to understand the importance of space capabilities and, and why the Space Force is here to protect those capabilities. Additionally, our, you know, our, our political leaders need to be working together uh, to counter the real adversaries that are out there, and, and they are out there. Russia and China are actively developing capabilities to specifically target us and our space capabilities. That's the real enemy. That's who we need to be focusing our attention on. Um, so, so let's get the budget approved. Let's continue to grow the space force. Let's educate people on, on what the threat is and, and what we're doing to get after it. And then let's let our diplomatic uh, leaders work through the diplomatic channels to, again, reemphasize that a weapons of mass destruction in low earth orbit or, or in any orbit uh, are prohibited, why they're a bad idea. Let's reestablish those norms. Let's make sure that there are harsh penalties in place for anybody that pursues that type of weapon system, both diplomatic as well as economic penalties, uh, and maybe even further. Amazing, Charles. I can't say thank you enough for being here, uh, you know, and also to Shane, our producer, uh, putting these podcasts together. Uh, they're not an easy feat from a, a publishing and editing and, and everything else. So just appreciate you guys being here. Any final thoughts for the audience uh, to close out this special? Yeah, Slick. So to, to, to quote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, don't panic. Um, there, there are a lot of threats out there, uh, but we have the right leaders in place uh, and the right folks focusing on these, on these threats to, to counter them and make sure that our space capabilities are there. 
what I want to make sure everybody understands is uh, that we are getting after this. And what I want our potential adversaries to know is there is no silver bullet uh, that is going to undermine our space capabilities and, and weaken our overall defense posture. Uh, there, there is no way to go after this. And so do not pursue weapons that will have an indiscriminate effect and, and do not be misguided that you think you can uh, take us out in one fell swoop. It's not going to happen. Awesome, Charles. Thanks again for being here. All right, Slick, thank you very much. And uh, keep listening, folks.